Hey, welcome back to season three of Deconstructing the Myth, a season full of conversations about how to move forward with life during and after deconstruction. Today's conversation is a little different from our usual. I talk with Nathaniel Schweinberg about sexuality and relationship models that challenge ideas we've been taught in purity culture. I just wanted to put a disclaimer out there because we definitely hit adult topics with adult language, but I also wanted to take a second to speak to listeners who, like me, may initially feel hesitation about some of the topics we bring up. I hope you consider still sitting in with us in this conversation to see what good is in there for you. I think Nathaniel brings up some points that can really benefit those of us still remaining in even the more traditional Christian relationship models. Hey, well, I'm so excited to have Nathaniel Schweinberg on the show again. For those who have been following along, you were actually a guest in season one, and you had not mm-hmm. one but two episodes. You were uh, episode That's eight special. and nine. Yes, because you had so much to say, and here you are again. I just, I think you do have so much to say. That's partly why I invited you back <laughs> on. <laughs> That's partly why, because people have loved your episodes. Um, you definitely talked about some of the harder hitting topics as far as leaving Christianity fully. And um, you talked about suffering, the problem of suffering, and then top five Bible Mm -hmm. objections. But today we are taking a different route. I asked you back on the show, I'm going to be honest, it stresses me out. It stressed me out. (laughs) (laughs) to to, uh, (laughs) ask about this. And that just shows, I think, the purity culture still living inside of me. Um, Because we're going to be talking about lessons you have learned concerning sexuality and relationships, especially relationship models outside the evangelical traditional Christian model of monogamy, um, and how people within even monogamy and even within the Christian framework can benefit from some of these lessons that you have learned outside of the way you started, which is like so many of us started within purity culture, within this idea, within Christian culture of what relationships need to look like romantically, sexually, etc. So I just want to preface this episode saying that for some of us, like me, in a way, some of this may seem taboo at first, but I really think it's important for those of us in deconstruction, especially concerning purity culture, to dive in, to dig in and see where we've had blind spots regarding our relationships mm-hmm. and our sexuality. Because I, I am befuddled consistently <laughs> with how many things come up for me personally that I just wasn't aware of were so shaped by purity culture. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny. It's one of those yeah. things I think you and I, well, you're... You came to deconstruct partly because of experience and partly because of intellectual arguments. I know for me, it started purely mm-hmm. with the intellect, right? And so this this whole topic has been kind of like off the radar for me. But the more mm-hmm. I've talked to mm-hmm. you and talked to other people, the more I'm like, oh, it affected me too. It just has kind of been yep. like in the corner. So anyways, I'm rambling on and on and on, but I'm so happy you were willing to do this. Also, I'm happy because you are starting your own podcast. So before we dig into everything, could you kind of just give us a little snippet of what that's going to be like? Because that's going to segue right into what we talk about. Yeah. The podcast I'm starting is called Purity Cult, and it's not exactly, it's not only talking about purity culture. It's mm-hmm. It's more talking about how 
we we grew up uh, speaking as as you and I and I'm assuming yeah. many listeners we grew up in a religion that was so focused on binary thinking mm-hmm. you either were tainted by sin or you're not there is no in between you're going to hell or you're not mm-hmm. and so we have to be covered in the blood of Christ to be fully redeemed in order to make it into heaven otherwise we're screwed if you at the age of 4 depending on your theology you'll say even the age of 13 and you tell a lie and otherwise live a perfect life, you are going to hell. Mm, yeah. In addition to that, add in sexuality and add in every other domain of our life. Yeah. This, this, I mean, in my, my opinion, cult is so focused on purity and doing things a specific way that if you don't, you're screwed. God is upset with you. You're going to hell or any, any of these things. So all that, all that to say, Purity cult is kind of my expression of a lot of things that you and I have talked about uh, on and off the show and wanted to hopefully give a voice to things that have and haven't been said. Yeah, well, I'm sure it will, because like I said, even just talking to you as a friend, there's been so much that I've been like, oh my gosh, like I didn't even think of consent in this way ever, or I didn't even think of jealousy this way ever. And so it needs to be out there. And I think you (laughs) as a person are going to be kind of the perfect one to deliver some of this because you've, first of all, you've lived it (laughs) and you've had a chance to, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of come out in a different way, come out from that purity culture or come out from that real, like you said, like that sort of cult around sexuality in a way that a lot of us maybe yep. haven't, but then also I just, you know, you as a person, you're very, you know, we've already talked about it. I think you're, I think you're a great <laughs> podcaster. You. Like you're going to be great at it. So anyways, shameless plug for your show. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, and I'm going to send everyone your way. <laughs> Might be interested in that. Okay. <laughs> um, but can you just start off telling us, you know, your story, especially concerning your thoughts on sexuality growing up um, and how that has mm-hmm. shifted in recent years? Yeah. So, I mean, growing up, I feel like I had a, a fairly typical experience, although potentially maybe not because like in hindsight, I was very much the good boy. Mm-hmm. I was very much the one that avoided circumstances that would put me in quote unquote compromising positions. I didn't make out with everybody. I didn't have sex until I was married at the age of 27. Um, I had very, very, very limited sexual experience. I mean, just to be completely frank, I only ever kissed people mm-hmm. before I got married. Um, so I did what I was supposed to do. And unfortunately that failed me and it failed our relationship because we did what we were supposed to do. And day one, we experienced issues, we experienced problems. Um, and it's been a long, difficult road working through that and trying to figure out how that works for both of us. Um, a long story short, very normal childhood, very normal adolescent years, very normal young adult years of experiencing arousal, experiencing just normal human things concerning sexuality. But because of the stories and things that I was taught within the church was told that I was shameful, Mm. that I was wrong for having these feelings and then therefore was weak or I wasn't strong enough in the Lord, or I didn't study enough, or I didn't have enough of power of the Holy Spirit in my body to suppress and ignore these feelings until I was married. And now looking back at it, it's like, no, I, I, 
yeah, I had a very, very normal <laughs> up until now. All of the things I've experienced have been have been what are common to humanity. Mm-hmm. And according to at least scripture, common to what God designed in us. Mm-hmm. But because it wasn't able to be expressed within the context of marriage, it was wrong. Um, to add to this whole story, like this culminated uh, in a program that I was in when we were living in California called Avenue for Men. But yeah, it was supposed to be this program that like dudes went to to shut it off and to give kind of some color to it i'd say 80 or 90 percent of the men that were in that group were there because of infidelity to have just a single dude trying to get quote-unquote control on his sexuality i was the exception i knew myself and two or three other guys in a group 60 strong wow so just after your deconstruction and after, you know, you left behind mentally, or at least cognitively, these ideas of shoulds mm-hmm. and shouldn'ts as you'd been raised with, what did that start looking like yep. for your relationship dynamic? Great question. So what was nice about deconstruction was that now that the fetters of Christianity were off, I no longer was constrained to this idea of marriage has to be one man, one woman. Again, within Christianity gender dynamics between opposite gendered or differently gendered people are constrained. Like Mm -hmm. you can only be intimate with people of the same gender and intimacy outside of that expression. I'm not talking physical intimacy. I'm talking emotional intimacy. Mm. Intimacy outside of that expression is taboo because it threatens whatever relationship that differently gendered person from you is in. So if they're married you're inherently threatening the stability of their relationship by being intimate with another person who's differently gendered than you. Well, so just to put this in concrete terms. So like if you Mm -hmm. were to be a friend with somebody's wife, a platonic friend, there is inherent, and I can attest to this, like there's inherent stress that comes along with that. And, Mm -hmm. and you know, how much of that is because of how we were taught to think like, well, that is a, that is a risk. And can I just say something? This makes me so mad. I have not even in Christian spaces, (laughs) not even just in Christian spaces. I have more than once come across videos where people are like, you know, it's a, it's impossible for there to be a platonic friendship. It's impossible. It's like, someone's always going to be trying something and it Mm. infuriates me. And I think it infuriates me in part because I've believed that so long to be honest. Mm -hmm. And even Mm -hmm. if there, and I, and I think there's another underlying lie there that if there's attraction, like you're one step away from infidelity, that's another lie, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely something that I can definitely attest to for me was tied to faith because it was the idea of, you know, when Jesus says, if, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, to lust, gouge it out, you basically already committed adultery. Mm -hmm. Then that line seems like real thin from one to the other. And that's also not yep. the case, but anyway, that's a small Liz tangent <laughs> from me. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Well, to speak to that, this is one of the things that kind of gets unpacked as I deconstruct and, and am able to experience uh, spoiler. Most of my friends now are women. Mm-hmm. The overwhelming majority of my friends are women. And there's a reason for that, uh, which I'll hopefully I'll probably get into. Yeah. Um, but because Christianity, again, this binary thinking of, of you can't, you can only be intimately, related to another per- with another person of your same gender that 
produces a taboo. It creates a taboo. And the nature of humanity, you know, if, you, if you're if you not familiar with the marshmallow experiment, there's this, there's this experiment with like four and five-year-olds, I think. They're very young kids. And they're sat in a room and they're presented with a marshmallow. And they say, if you don't eat this marshmallow, by the time we come back, you'll get another marshmallow. So they're, they're promised another marshmallow if they're able to restrain themselves. Mm-hmm. And like the, the majority of the kids eat the marshmallow immediately in front of them, preventing them from getting the second marshmallow. Mm-hmm. So there's just like this fundamental uh, behavior in humans that if we're presented with a taboo, it is interesting. Mm. And one of the things that I think is fascinating about that is that when our bodies are aroused, arousal is a, I'm using it in the, in the neutral, neutral term, like the, the state of being that my body is in an anxious or elevated state. Arousal feels no different than anxiety. Mm. The same systems are all turned on. So speaking to my experience when I was younger, when I was like anxious, like just anxiety and arousal are just so tied. So if you introduce a taboo, if you introduce this thing that you're not supposed to be doing, you're producing anxiety, which is a state of arousal, which feels no different than sexual arousal or very similar anyway. Mm -hmm. And people are just drawn to wanting to do that. Yeah. So trying to put a big pretty bow on this. You know, yes, most of my friends are women. Yeah. They're, and they're purely platonic. <laughs> like, yeah. I do not have sex with these women. Yeah. And they are in my inner circle. Mm-hmm. So being able to remove a taboo, being able to remove a, you can't do this thing, don't do this thing, has at least set me free in a way that I wasn't able to be as a Christian. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I think it's so interesting because I've talked to people who didn't grow up, you know, with any sort of purity culture really. And, and this, there's this strange unpacking when people are like, you know, they think in a way because you didn't do anything physically, they're like, Oh, your mind is so innocent and pure too. And I was like, I kind of think purity culture, like you said, almost exasperates like, Mm -hmm. uh, like objectifying people. That's one thing I've had to wrestle with. I was like, I think I've objectified people. And I, I mean, all people, I mean myself, like this weird, there's some Mm -hmm. weird dynamics. And I think that they are a result of that weird play between anxiety and arousal, like our brain. Mm -hmm. And I I just have never really heard that even until you put that into words. And I thought it makes so much sense how you think about, you know, you're like, you shouldn't think about this thing. Now, what do you think about? Well, the thing, you know, and, and I don't know, which is so interesting. Um, yeah. Don't think about a pink elephant and you're going to think about it immediately. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. Okay. So after deconstruction, a lot of fighters were released. A lot of, um, a lot of avenues were then open because now I don't have the threat of hell looming against me for trying different things. Something that has resonated with me for a long time, but I never had the terminology for it was polyamory was, loving more than one person, having romantic love for more than one person. For as long as I can remember, I have craved and desired intimate relationships with like basically everyone around me. And I say intimate, that is like a spectrum. I'm not saying I want to have sex with everybody. I'm saying I want to be deeply connected to people, emotionally vulnerable. And in some cases more than emotionally vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, So whenever that was released, 
it was like, holy shit, this is a thing that like inherently makes sense to me. Yes, of course I would love more than one person. Of course I'd want to be close to more than one person. And in that exploration, there's a, there's a book called The Ethical Slut. Oh, wow. <laughs> that what talks a about how, right? <laughs> great title. It honestly is a great book. Uh, look into it because it, it talks, it is a good intro guide to people that have been monogamous and have thought a certain way. It asks important questions and then, and then guides you on how to live an ethically non-monogamous lifestyle. Um, and one of the things they point out is in virtually every other arena of our life, the, the idea of exclusivity isn't a thing like, or, or rather, the, the idea of a finite amount of love is just not a thing. You can have as many kids as you want, and you have abundant amounts of love for each of them. You can have a bunch of friends that you have abundant amounts of love for. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, when it comes to romantic partnerships, there is only so much. You can only, you know, there's only so much love that can go around. You can only maintain one at a time. And sure, there's reasons why it's difficult to maintain more than one romantic partnership, but it is possible mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be your thing. That's totally fine, but it is a thing for me and it is a thing for thousands of other people who find immense value and are um, fulfilled in ways that they weren't before. So, And let me step in real fast yeah. because for those, of, for those who are listening and feel that like oh, that glitch that's going to happen. I mean, we see this in the Bible. <laughs> you want to talk about a biblical model? Yes. Like it is all over the Old Testament. Yep. And granted, the reasons I think were vastly different. Of course, you know, thinking about cultural, mm-hmm. th- thinking about culture, thinking about how women were protected and how they were not protected and how they were treated. Mm-hmm. But we see in the Bible this model even happening and God even being okay with it. Like over and over we see, mm-hmm. you know, Oh, there's a righteous man and he has these wives and yada, yada. For, and for those of us <laughs> who do have this ingrained, like no, the biblical model is one man, one woman. It's like, you have to think of the whole true. Bible. You have to think of the whole Bible mm-hmm. too. And so, like I said, if there's some discomfort there, I still, I, I, I hope we can press in through that because there are ways even back when it was more, what do you call it, polygamous, I guess, which still, I think, included polyamory for a lot of those people. But there were ways that we see in the Old Testament that God honored people for treating those people correctly and for treating them incorrectly. So I just think that's really important to point out. Yeah, I hearken back to uh, David and and the prophet Nathaniel. God didn't call out David for having relations with, with another woman because, oh my God, you're having relations with another person. No, he called out David for having relations with, with Bathsheba because he was stealing someone who's in a committed relationship elsewhere mm-hmm. and taking advantage of her. Not the fact that he was already in existing non-monogamous relationships. No, he was breaking the commitment that they had made to somebody else. That's so interesting. Yeah. Because he had multiple wives, uh, mul- multiple yeah. and concubines, concubines and which is like a whole nother topic. Um, but you're absolutely <laughs> right. That those things are not, we don't see being condemned, but this was, Mm-mm. yeah. Yep. So interesting. Okay. So now that we know where you're coming from a bit, um, let's get into some definitions because I think for a lot of us, as we continue this talk, 
and continue some of the lessons mm-hmm. you've learned, there might be some terms that we're less familiar with. Yep. So, and uh, yeah, I wanted to give us all a common ground to work from whenever I use these words, because I will be using some of them with specific meanings in mind. Yeah. Um, but non-monogamy, we'll start with non-monogamy. Non-monogamy is an umbrella term for every practice or philosophy of non-dyadic, as in non-two people relationships, uh, of non-dyadic intimate relationships that does not strictly hew to the standards of monogamy, particularly that of having only one person with whom to exchange sex, love, and or affection. Um, so whenever you think about non-monogamy, or excuse me, uh, polyamory, open relationships, ethical non-monogamy, that might be a term, term you've heard thrown around, um, polygamy, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to remember what the, the terms are for like a, a woman-centered woman with multiple husbands versus husband with multiple wives. I forget what those terms are, mm-hmm. um, but th- those all fall under the banner of non-monogamy. Carrying on with this definition, it is not synonymous with infidelity. Since all parties are consenting to the relationship structure, partners are often committed to each other as well as their other partners, and cheating is still considered problematic behavior with many non-monogamous relationships. Mm, yeah. Like cheating, infidelity, one, is possible in non-monogamous relationships, and two, isn't tolerated. Like it's not, there is no world in which it is okay to break agreements between people mm-hmm. like just because we have multiple romantic relationships or multiple platonic relationships or multiple whatever there is still consent there's still agreements and it doesn't mean that it's okay to do whatever the fuck you want to do mm-hmm. yeah which i think many people they can that aren't familiar with yes be like absolutely i think that's something that i hear often when the idea of an open yeah. relationship or something comes up it's like oh well you just wanted to cheat that's something I'm sure you've heard people say. Yeah. I've heard, oh, you just wanted to cheat. And it's like, well, no, you're doing this because <laughs> from, mm-hmm. you know, when I hear you talk, it's like, no, you're doing this because you really want to make sure, like you said, everyone is understanding everyone. Otherwise, why not just go cheat? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it's just, anyway. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, no, it is very, very important for the consent of everyone involved to be present. And, and ask a component of consent. We'll get into a consent's definition here in a little bit. Yeah. A component of consent is it's informed. Yeah. I have to be aware of what I'm getting into. And if I'm not aware of it, then I didn't consent to it. Mm. And yeah, it's just, it's just, it is an important component in this, that everyone is aware of what they're getting into. They didn't sign up for something that they didn't want to. And if and when they do become aware of something that they didn't sign up for, that is then addressed. Yeah. and resolved and however that manifests either with an apology or oh shit i'm so sorry i did not mean to do that or termination of that relationship or some other resolution but mm. polyamory uh polyamory is the uh, practice of or desire for romantic relationships with more than one partner at the same time with the informed consent uh, there's that word mm-hmm. of all partners involved people who identify as polyamorous may believe in open relationships with a conscious management of jealousy and reject the view that sexual and relational exclusivity, i.e. monogamy, are prerequisite for deep, committed, long-term loving relationships. So note in that polyamory doesn't, like, it isn't exclusive to sexual relationships. Because I want to make sure that people that identify as aromantic and asexual, like people that are aromantic and asexual, fall under the umbrella of polyamory because it has to do with love. It doesn't have to do with sex. Hmm. Sex can be a component of that, but it doesn't, have to be 
like there's plenty of people that are um like one person i'm aware of right now that's that's ace that has loving partners and they're in committed relationships and they personally decide not to have those relationships with other people love isn't exclusive to sex like you can have sex with someone that you don't love and you can love someone that you have sex with like they're independent factors from each other and the reason that's important is because there's people that are asexual they do not experience sexual attraction for others or they have limited attraction for other people mm-hmm. and there's people that are aromantic that don't experience romantic feelings for other people but still have loving relationships with those people that have deep intimate connections with those people mm-hmm. so polyamory covers those relationships as well it, like those relationships fall under the umbrella of polyamory mm-hmm. it's just important that people that don't experience it quote unquote like everyone else does mm-hmm. aren't excluded from this because they're they are included uh, a little like tangent that i wanted to go on is how many folks that grew up in christianity who lived the life that i lived of okay i'm gonna i'm gonna wait until marriage and i'm not gonna do anything and when i get married it's gonna be great it's gonna be awesome it's gonna be passionate it's gonna be all these things and they get in the bedroom and find out it's none of those things and then years go by and they find out still that it's none of those things how many men and women lower desire partners don't did or rather didn't actually know they were asexual and got married, committed their life to another person without knowing, I actually don't experience sexual um, attraction to other people. And how many marriages have been destroyed because of this? And how many lives have been just just distraught because of this? Had people been able to explore their sexuality before hitching their trailer to another person, so to speak? they would be able to more confidently know, is this a partnership that I can enter into and maintain? Mm. Because if you don't know that component before you sign on to somebody, sure, a, a large majority of people that may work for, but there is a significant amount of people that don't experience that or they married someone that they weren't, weren't actually attracted to. Mm. Like God, the number of people that I know that left christianity to then be able to explore their sexuality and find out who they are in the bedroom um that is a non-zero sum (laughs) of people Mm. that found out they are different having been able to explore Mm. you know and we hear pastors say it's gonna be amazing it's gonna be great with your one and only um well i'm sorry sir a sample size of one is not a good representative sample (laughs) to know it's going to be great. Like how can a pastor who has never had sex with somebody or maybe only have, have ever had sex with one person know what great sex is? Hmm. <laughs> That's a very interesting point. And, and I think also just, I don't know this, this thought that you have nothing to learn. Like, I think a lot of us, we think we mm-hmm. come, you know, you make it, you make it to the honeymoon. Oh, you, you, and now you've arrived. That's kind of the thought mm-hmm. you have arrived. You've done all the things you need to do and now it's going to be easy and now it's going to be, and it's like for so many people, that's not the case. And because we're not taught about consent, which we'll get into actually next, I think we're not taught about consent. We're like, okay, well, well now we have to just do what's needed 
uh, I guess, you know, yep. I thought it'd be fun. It's not, but I still have to do it because now we went from zero to a hundred. Now it's expected to be like a very important and ongoing part all the time. It, it's just so yeah. wild how we're expected to, to flip the switch, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yep. Yeah. No, like, so speaking from my own experience, having now left all of that, again, my wife was my only sexual partner up and until this point in my life. Mm -hmm. I did not have this experience with other people. And it was so nice being able to progress at a pace that wasn't, I love you, now let's rip all our clothes off and get to fucking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it was able to progress at, at various levels over time. I didn't have to rush straight into the bedroom with this person that I did genuinely love, but it was allowed to bloom more. Um, yeah. I mean, there's just so much pressure to yeah. put on, on two people who in some cases like ours uh, had only been dating for four months. Yeah. Right. Like, yes, we were comfortable with each other. We loved each other. We cared about each other, but good God, that was a nervous and intense night. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, a super common experience. That's, that's not new. Oh Yeah. For sure. Let's talk about consent because that is a great, yeah. Can I've got that verse on my mind of, yeah, the verse talking about um, a spouse's bodies belonging to one another. Mm. As a believer, that was like, oh, wow, that's, that's so beautiful. And now that's a problem mm. because that doesn't take consent into consideration whatsoever. Mm. Now, granted, people can justify that like, oh, you know, if you cross-reference over the other verses saying that that you know men are head of the men are head of the wives is christ is head of the church and christ died for the church so men should die for their wives there there are there are ways of coloring that verse differently mm -hmm. than what it is on its face but in practice the number of stories that i've heard of of marital rape of men forcing themselves mm. on their yeah. wives uh no consent no no sign on to the activity like that's a, that's a common feature in yeah. relationships and especially Christian relationships. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about consent. Dictionary says permission, uh, consent is permission for something to happen or agreement to do something. Bare minimum. That's what the, the definition is. Uh, Planned Parenthood came up with a great acronym called fries. Okay. Consent is freely given. It's reversible. It's informed. It's enthusiastic and it's specific. And the uh, there's a there's a group in Hollywood, like this is actually a relatively new position on set, but an, an intimacy director and coordinator. Uh, they also have a acronym called CRISP, which is considered reversible, informed, specific, and participatory. Uh, well, I'll give you the links to to the to the, those two articles to go into those more for those who want to read more about it yeah. and why they're they're slightly different. But the idea with consent is that, and I'm gonna operate off of. Planned, parent, Planned Parenthoods, just because I'm more familiar with it. It's really given. Like, I'm not being coerced into do some, doing something that I don't want to do. Uh, case in point, let's say you're at a bar and you're drinking and you're having a good time and you're talking to somebody and they're like, hey, you want to go up to the hotel room? And you're like, no, no, I'm good. I, I think I just want to stay here. Conversation continues. Hey, you know, what do you think about going up to the hotel room? That sounds like a great idea, right? And you're like, no, no, not really. I, I just want to stay here. And they continue hammering you. And finally, eventually you're just like, fine, okay, I'll just go up with you. That is not freely given consent. Mm -hmm. That is coerced mm -hmm. consent. Wow. They are 
pushing you into something that you didn't want to do, that you don't want to do, but they just worn your will down enough that you are like, fine, let's just get this over with so I can move on with my yeah, night. Yeah. Reversible is the next is the next letter in the acronym, meaning I can stop this at any point in time. If I'm not if I'm not comfortable with what's happening, I can say, I'm done. I'm out. Uh, I don't do this anymore. And it's fine. Um, you know, ideally your partner's not going to be upset with you. Hopefully they would be like, oh, no, 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 absolutely not. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. That's the desired response. Not everyone has that, unfortunately. And I'm so sorry that people don't experience that. Yeah. Uh, but consent is reversible. Consent is also informed. It means that you are fully aware of the risks and benefits of what you're about to enter into. This is why whenever you go into therapy, if you've ever been to therapy, um, one of the things that they, one of the documents that they give you is an informed consent document, meaning telling you, you know, therapy is a wonderful thing, but there are going to be things that are going to be deeply uncomfortable, potentially uh, triggering, and you need to be aware of this going into this yeah. so that you're not like shocked out of the blue. Informed consent is important to have when you're going into something that you haven't been in before mm -hmm. uh, or even have been in before to know this is what I can expect out of this experience. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about enthusiastic, which is the next letter in the acronym. Uh, and this is the definition from Planned Parenthood site. When it comes to sex, you should only do stuff you want to do, not things you feel you're expected to do. Mm. Uh, this is kind of related to that initial example that I gave of being coerced into something. The, the, the goal for, for sex and that connection is that it's, a, it's an enthusiastic act. It's like, yes, I'm so excited to do all these things. I have, I have some tension with this word, specifically when it comes to like maintenance sex. Because I've been in that position where I am the lower desire partner. And my other partner is like, rip, roar, and ready to go. Let's do this thing. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not super there, but I can, I can be there for you. Mm, yeah. And I, I'm not sure where, I'm not sure where the quote unquote professionals would say this lies in enthusiastic. But I know for me, I may not be like, woo, let's get, you know, jump in bed and, and mm -hmm. get to the thing. Um I may not be like that, but I know I want to give pleasure to my partner and, mm -hmm. you know, my affect might be flat, but I am happy about providing them yeah. that pleasure. So, yeah. That's something people all just have to work out on their own, I'm sure, in part. But I also remember specifically after coming out of college, mm -hmm. you know, right when all of us were getting, not all of us, but many of us were getting married, you know, 20, 21, super young. And I remember having this specific conversation with someone. She just read some Christian book and she's like, I'm really mm. feeling convicted that if he ever wanted, I am mm. never to say no, never to say right. no. And I remember at the time kind of mulling that over and being like, is that a good idea? And then I, I was like, no, <laughs> it doesn't. On the one hand, it felt so pious. And then on the other hand, it was like something mm -hmm. felt really wrong about it. And now hearing, hearing some of these definitions, I'm like, well, that's why it felt wrong is because yep. you know and, and similar yeah. to just how we're taught i think to think about sacrificial love in christianity we are taught mm -hmm. to completely disregard self so many times mm -hmm. and that is so problematic yep. especially when it comes to things that have to do with your body because i think you can kind of trick your mind mm -hmm. and your emotions in a different way than you can trick the body you know and and i've i've definitely heard as about people who it was almost like their body it there there's a, such a severe disconnect for years like you talked yep. about because they're like well my body knows it needs to perform now but like 
my mind's miles away. Mm. Anyway, that's another topic for another day. But yeah, um, I just I think that's really important to point out. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's su- I'd say that's super on topic because that's directly related to what we're talking yeah. about right now. Yeah. In that, I can never say no. That directly goes against reversible consent. Mm. Yeah, means you can yeah. always take it back. Yeah. Yeah. It is always like I am. I am always in possession of. I'm just gonna say this. There's this little orb of light that I can share with people. Mm-hmm. That is my willingness, my consent to participate in whatever actions are happening, and. If I am unable to get that orb of light back, mm. I am no longer consenting to this to this thing. And that in and of itself can be traumatic, speaking yeah. from experience. It fucking sucks. Yeah. yeah. So thinking about Christian relationships where my body does not belong to me and I'm the lower desired partner and I have to say no, or rather I cannot say no, mm-hmm. I am unable to consent to this activity. And that is detrimental to your to your health and well-being. Like... Mm-hmm. I've heard stories of folks that like the term is disassociation. They retreat into their mind so that their partner can do whatever they want, get, get their rocks off and mm. move about their day. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a therapist. I don't have the language to speak about this beyond if, you know, I'm about to cry. Yeah. It's not good for you. No, it's not good for the relationship. Assuming that it's an otherwise healthy relationship. Yeah, it's just, it breaks my heart. Yeah. It is very painful. Yeah. And it just, it's, you know, it's a cheese grater to the soul. Like, disconnecting your mind from your body like that. Like, sex is, at its best, this deeply unifying experience. Not only within myself of, of I actually feel connected to my, I actually feel connected to both my mind and body, which I often don't. Uh I also feel connected to whomever I'm having sex with. Well, and yeah. I think one of the things that makes me so sad and so angry that I've thought about recently is how many people I know personally who have had this mindset of like, well, mm-hmm. we never say no. And then it's almost like the spouse mm-hmm. doesn't know that. Like, not always does the spouse mm-hmm. know that. They don't know that they're trying mm-hmm. to like honor you this way or whatever. They're like, oh, they say yes. They they seem into it. And granted, maybe after a time you you, you can tell when someone's into it or not. But maybe not if you've had this one mm-hmm. partner, this one experience, you know, this one experience. It's just, it hurts me because I think sometimes people don't even realize their partner is hurting mm-hmm. because they're not even led into that. I think that has happened before and it's such a strange phenomenon. And I think it really speaks to the system of purity culture, mm-hmm. like, and how it kind of yes. weirdly insidious it is and gets, you know, and gets in a way where it's not even clear cut because I, I, I think of cases where it's like, Oh, well then if they weren't consenting, were they raped? And I'm like, it doesn't honestly seem like it because there are specific cases I'm thinking of that I know of particular people. Mm-hmm. I'm like that spouse they didn't know that consent wasn't fully given. And I don't know how you, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's so much to think about. It's so much to think about for me, especially in like, just, just, you know, growing up and and hearing these stories from people I care about and love. And I'm just like, what in the world? I don't have the confidence to speak with authority to say whether that was sexual assault or not. Yeah. Uh, But what I can say is there are, I won't even say that there are degrees. I'm going to say that there are consent violations. There are mm-hmm. things that can happen that you did not consent to. 
Mm. like consent is specifically given for certain activities. And if you haven't talked about a thing, why on earth are you not talking about this before, which is a problem endemic to purity culture and Christian relationships in that you don't speak openly and candidly about sex. Yeah. Uh, and that's a problem that's endemic to purity culture and Christian relationships is that conversations surrounding sex are taboo and it feels uncomfortable and it feels weird to talk about specific desires and things that you'd like to try. Uh, you know, so since leaving Christianity um, and entering into this new world of polyamory and, and uh, more sexual, sexual expression, part of that for me has been entering into, into a kink lifestyle or like being a lot more fluent in that language. And whenever you're entering into, or like whenever you're about to engage in kinky sexual activity, that is pre-negotiated. The term is pre-negotiated. You talk about you, you doing a thing, a way of ethically handling yourself within a kink sexual activity is that you talk about everything that happens before it happens. Uh, thinking specifically of, of an ex-girlfriend, like, like we would pre-plan things that we would go into and we knew the outline. We knew what things were on the table, what things were off the table. Like it was very clear cut what was okay and what was not okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm not super aware of that being taught within Christian circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of is like, I think back to like premarital counseling and maybe ish. And I, I know the encouraged frank, candid conversations surrounding sex so that it could be not taboo. I know there are people trying to make it not taboo, but just think going back to thinking to, to your friends where they hadn't specifically talked about that thing before, that is potentially a consent violation because they never explicitly gained consent for that thing yeah. beforehand. They just assumed. It's so damaging and i think it's this idea again it goes back to the verse with like your body belongs to me i think that's part of it it's like oh Mm -hmm. well to some degree whatever you want maybe maybe you should have access to and it's like for some of us Mm -hmm. i shouldn't say all for some of us it's like thinking about the other person is trumping even our own idea of what we want and, and that's taught to be mm-hmm. a, a Christ-like loving thing. And and I, I would argue if you don't actually know what you want, you can't even fully love that person, even though you think, oh, the sacrificial mm-hmm. way of of being is, is fully love. It's like, well, no, because do they really want a shell of you? Like, do they really want the you yeah. under obligation? You know, you would hope not. No. So it's very interesting. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Going back to that, to the consent is enthusiastic. It's yeah. I, I, I want you to be excited to be here. I, because I'm excited to be here. I want you to be just as excited as I am about this encounter. Cause it's an important, valuable, emotional activity for me. I, I don't want you distant somewhere else. And it's perfectly okay to stop. That's again, where reversible comes in of that. If, if even in the middle of the encounter, yeah. Yeah. people start disassociating or they're just like not really interested in it anymore. It's perfectly fine to stop. There's nothing wrong with that. Please stop for your sake. Yeah. And if they have a problem with it, it is their problem. I think that's something I wish people understood more because, again, with the purity culture, at least how I was taught, it's like, well, if they have a problem with it, like that's now your problem. Like you're responsible for their feeling in a sense. 
in that in that space. Great segue because absolutely, there are some dudes <laughs> in the church that need to chill really, really hard um, because they don't have a good grasp on their own sexuality and they really do need to learn some self control. Mm-hmm. Like I will say, that was one benefit to that avenue for men thing that I did. It was hell for a lot of reasons, but one thing it did do for me was help me regulate my sexuality Hmm. in ways that I hadn't been able to before. And so being able to like be fine if a partner's like, oh my God, no, stop. That that I am horrified that there are people with not enough sexual control or not enough Mm self-control to be at the height of a thing and be able to pull from it immediately. Mm. Um, and that doesn't mean that, that you're immediately calm. That doesn't mean that you're not like having to breathe through your your own aroused state and having to calm down. But that does not mean that you have the right to yell at the person that you're engaging with. It does not mean that you have the right to say, well, I need to finish because we started. We need to stop. Mm. And no, that does not give you that right whatsoever. As soon as the other person says no, or the, as soon as the other person says stop, Everything stops. It is complete. That engagement is done and you're now transitioning into whatever non-sexual thing happens after that. And it's entirely possible that you'll get started again, Mm. but it's also entirely possible that it won't. And it's fine if it doesn't. And anything point, anything past the point of the other partner saying no is your responsibility to deal with after the fact. And a lot of Christian men need to learn how to control themselves and their feelings in ways that they don't currently. And it pisses me the fuck off. Again, I'm constantly reminded of ways that I have been taught to think about sex that I don't even know. Because mm. I definitely mm. heard growing up, it's like, you know, that's unkind. If you're going to be kind mm-hmm. to your spouse, you shouldn't do that because it's so difficult for them, especially a man. It's so difficult for them. And it's like, like if you're going to say no at a certain point, and it yep. just blows my mind. To think about like how many years have I spent operating under that assumption, even with such mm-hmm. a loving partner. Like, and that's the thing. I think some of us yeah. we're not we're not confronted with the reality of, of our thoughts about sex because maybe we have mm-hmm. figured out, you know, a loving structure that doesn't maybe test these things. But the fact is, like those mm-hmm. messages still live inside us until consciously yeah, brought to the surface. It's just crazy. And to add color to that as well, you know, I understand that a lot of women will just continue with it to get it over with because they don't want to deal with an angry guy naked in their bed. Like, because the, because whomever's saying no is also in an extremely vulnerable position and it's entirely possible that the partner would get violent. And that is terrifying. So all that is to say, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, men presenting people in the world that really needed to learn how to control and express their emotions in a regulated way that doesn't explode on their partners in the bedroom or outside of the bedroom. So one of the things in particular that you and I have spoken about as friends that is so fascinating to me is Mm -hmm. how the dynamic of jealousy really works in polyamory and how that even impacts how you think of, you know, platonic relationships, monogamous relationships. I I really think this is super interesting. And you came across this really researching about how to be, um, ethically, what's the word? 
polyamorous. Ethically non-monogamous. Yes. Thank mm-hmm. you. That's kind of where I, th- I, correct me if I'm wrong, where, where you started really thinking about this in concrete terms. But I just think some of the things you've shared with me have been really important for various relationships in my life. For me personally, yeah. just thinking about. So yeah, can you share a little bit with us about that? Yeah. So jealousy is an interesting term, specifically as, re- as it relates to Christianity, because there's two terms I want to bring up, jealousy and envy. Mm-hmm. And growing up, and I, was, I remember being taught that envy was like just this awful, awful thing. But if you, and the jealousy was just like, oh, you know, you're jealous that someone has a thing. Um, for whatever reason, and I don't entirely know why, but if you do reading in non-monogamous spaces, my experience of these terms are flipped okay. in that jealousy is the main bad guy and envy is the lesser of the two evils. Interesting. Jealousy okay. and just, yeah, providing definitions here for, for common understanding. The main difference, uh, this is from lifecoachingandtherapy.com. The main difference between envy and jealousy is that envy is when you want something that someone else has. You're envious of how much attention your partner is giving someone else, uh, or you crave the time they're spending with someone else, or uh, you want to hoard and keep things that you share just between the two of you. Like you have a favorite cup um, that you two use and no one else can use that cup. With jealousy, there's also a fear of something being stolen or taken away from you. Mm. You guard things you care closely to prevent them from slipping away. Jealousy in its worst form can turn nasty and even dangerous. So... If you're talking about jealousy and envy in non-monogamous spaces, they'll say something along the lines of like, envy is completely normal. It totally makes sense that when your partner is out with somebody else and they're having a good time and they're having a romantic connection and whatever, that you also want this thing because you care for your partner. You love your partner. You want to spend time with your partner. It gets into an unhealthy space when it turns into jealousy and it's no longer just I want this with my partner. It's I want to take this away from my partner and their other partner. Hmm. Like I do not want my partner having this with anybody else. And I'm going to also possibly do things to inhibit or prevent that from happening. That's where it gets unethical. It gets into an issue. So where this, so circling back and then put a bow, put a, put a bow on it. Completely normal to experience envy, to want to experience things that your partner is experiencing with other people. It gets destructive when you want to take that experience away from your partner and the other partners and only have it for yourself. That's when it's selfish and damaging. Hmm. This is not exclusive to polyamory. I think about my uh, one of my best friends. I was I would have called it jealousy back then. Mm-hmm. Now I label it as as envy because I wanted. I mean, I wanted all of his time. I wanted to spend all my time with this guy. I loved this guy. Mm-hmm. and he also had a family he had kids like he had other yeah. commitments and relationships to maintain outside of me right so this isn't a, a thing that we experience only in romantic relationships we experience this with i mean anyone around us my coworker got to go spend a week in seattle with my boss and i was like fuck i want to do that <laughs> yeah and it's like okay no this, this is envy right this is a normal human experience um and Circling back to like the very beginning of, of what we were talking about earlier, this binary that we're presented with in Christian relationships and that you can only have emotional intimacy with someone of the same gender as you, mm-hmm. jealousy enters in in order to protect the monogamous relationship that they're in because they're threatened by the potential that that intimacy 
will destroy the relationship, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily true, right? Like it is possible for people that are, it is possible for people to have multiple emotionally intimate relationships and for all of those relationships to coexist and not threaten the other. And it's kind of interesting because we're taught, you know, in Christianity, there's this idea of jealousy being good. And I, I think in the sense of like the Lord is jealous, you're supposed to be jealous for your right? wife <laughs> or like your spouse. Yeah. And, and it's like this. And again, with maybe the flipping of the words, maybe, maybe within like a, a predetermined understanding of that like what does that mean for each spouse like what would be a violation that is considered infidelity however (laughs) i think we see so Mm -hmm. many issues with this especially like the first scenario we talked about when you have um a spouse who is jealous of a spouse's of their spouse's platonic friend who is a you know there's this there's Mm -hmm. so many areas where this isn't spoken about and really addressed head-on and yet those feelings really linger and kind of impact yep. our experience really negatively. Let's talk about a, a, a platonic example. Um, I've seen it cause significant amounts of tension in marriages where one partner will go out, go out of town for work or they'll go out of town to spend a week with their closest friends because they need a vacation and the other partner doesn't. And this causes tension because the partner is either experiencing envy or jealousy in that they want what they have for themselves and either to the degree to the degree that they want to shut it down or just that they simply want that. Mm-hmm. The solution to that, thankfully, is remarkably simple, but it's just not thought of for whatever reason. Let them go on a trip too. Mm-hmm. All that all that experience of envy is telling you is that you want to experience that thing as well. So if you, if your partner's going out to, you know, throw axes to one of those axe throwing places mm-hmm. and you're like, God, I want to do that too. Listen to the words that just entered your mind. I want to do that too. Go and do it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be an exclusive thing that your other, that your person went on, right? You can go do that. If your partner went out of town for a trip, either for work or for fun, you also should go out for, for on a trip for work or for fun. It doesn't have to be a, a, a FOMO situation. You don't have to be missing out. You can actually go and do those things that you're wanting to do, whether it's with your partner or, or out on your own. So interesting. It's true. It's like it becomes this all or nothing thing. Mm-hmm. And why? Why do we do that? Yep. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I wish I could tell you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Actually, it goes back to that, that idea of exclusivity because we, we – it's inbuilt – that all of like your meaningful connections have to be with this one person. They have to be with your spouse. And like in my view, that's just such a, a limited myopic view of life in that I can have incredibly intimate time with someone who is not my spouse. And that is perfectly fine because I'm also having incredibly intimate time with my spouse. It doesn't mean that I can only experience this one facet of life with this one person. In my view, that is a very limited view on life. And at its best, polyamory and other expressions of non-monogamy are so full of life that it's a wonderful thing. To be clear, informed consent for those that are curious about this, it can also be a living hell. (laughs) It can be so difficult especially leaving what we are all leaving yeah it is a transition 
and depending on how emotionally intelligent your partner is, let's say that you're already you're partnered and you're wanting to, to bring this up. There's plenty of resources that that we can point you to to to, talk, to bring this up with partners. But um, yeah, it just it it just isn't this painless transition from monogamy to non-monogamy. It is it is painful. It hurts, mm-hmm. um, and there is a lot of jealousy that you will experience and will have to work through. That's just a natural part of it. Now, some people just don't experience jealousy and I am amazed by that. And I love that they experience that. I don't, I've had to work through quite a bit and, oh, I've had to work through quite a bit because a fair amount of jealousy is actually masking insecurity. Hmm. And, oh my God, my partner's going to leave me because this other person's better than me in this one area. When, like in polyamory in polyamorous and non-monogamous spaces and relationships, one of the things that is taught that I don't really see taught in these in our in these former circles of ours, affirming the partner that I'm not leaving. Mm-hmm. I love you so much. These are the reasons that I like you. Like actually affirming the attachment in order to build security in the attachment, so that it's safe for that partner to go and do whatever it is that they're doing. Speaking of things that I've learned that are that benefit people in monogamous relationships is attachment styles and learning about how to form secure attachments. Because, yeah, you open that door to no longer have exclusive relationships with people. You have envy and jealousy that will pop up and boatloads of insecurity and learning how to navigate your own envy and jealousy and insecurity as well as reaching out for help. Cause there's not always times that you're going to be able to do that. And it's perfectly fine to reach out to your partner to be like, hi, I'm feeling really insecure. I need some love and attention. It may not happen right then. Your partner may not be available. They may have to circle back to it. Um, but reaching out for help and seeking security is a good thing. And I hope to God that your partner will see that and be kind and gentle with you in that moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then another thing I wanted us to get into um, was your thoughts on gender identity and how those have changed and how maybe people who even remain in these monogamous relationships would benefit from thinking about gender identity differently even within their relationship that already exists. Yeah, 100%. Um, So I know you're aware of this for listeners that aren't. Uh, I identify as a gender. I don't have a gender. I don't identify with being a man. I don't identify with being a woman. I don't identify with any of it. I just am. I exist. Mm-hmm. It's different from pangender where people, that person experience, they identify themselves as experiencing all genders and, and all gender expressions. I just don't experience any of that. So that's been an interesting thing for me to be able to explore on this side of things because I don't have to pretend to be a man. I mean, if you look at me day to day, I present like a dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, predominantly because i look i feel i look ridiculous in anything feminine so for the sake of my own confidence i don't present that way but you know i paint my nails i wear makeup um and amongst friends that i'm close to present feminine in my behavior um it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to explore what it means to be not a gender and part of the, part of where that kind of comes in is in the bedroom. And if you've ever heard of terms like top, bottom, 
dom sub or switch or whatever that is kind of where this all comes into because all of those have some relation to uh, power exchange or power dynamics meaning that one person can be in control and the other person is is allowing the other person to be in control and for men identifying folk or masculine presenting folk the idea of giving up control can be a really big problem mm-hmm. and can feel emasculating and can feel like oh i'm not enough of a man if i'm getting pegged in the butt great example right like how many guys are afraid of their butthole because it's going to make them gay or something which mm-hmm. is wholly factually false it's not um so I think there's a lot of room for people to explore more aspects of their identity as a human being. Not even just talking about the bedroom, but identity as a human being. If in your day-to-day life, you are in control of the space around you, like being able to go into the bedroom with a trusted individual who will take control and allow you to relax and just receive for a bit can be really healing, can be really fulfilling. So you were saying, you know, from a man's perspective, that can be very fulfilling to be able to explore maybe the different ways of expressing sexuality concerning gender than we're taught. And I can imagine it would be very similar for women as well, because, you know, whether or not Mm -hmm. we're conscious of it, we're also probably, you know, we're also taught like, okay, you receive, you are, you know, I don't know, docile, gentle. I don't know. Like it's just uh, these different ideas of perhaps how purity culture and even Christianity, Christian culture have taught us what man and woman specifically looks like and acts like. Mm -hmm. Um, The thought of that being... And how it has to pervade every aspect of their life. Yeah. Including the bedroom. I've said this, you know, I said this to a friend recently. I had someone ask, you know, is this this a manly trait? And I, it was such an interesting Mm. question to me because I said, well you're a man and you have this trait. Mm. So in my mind, (laughs) I'm like, then yes, you know, but I think it's so interesting Mm. how society has, has divided what is considered masculine, what's considered feminine. And, and, and that's definitely seen in Christian spaces. Um, And honestly, even from someone who's still a Christ follower, I think you can make a case that that is primarily human construct even that itself. That's a tangent Absolutely. for another day. Um, but nevertheless, it exists in our culture and it definitely comes out in Christian yep. culture. Man does this, woman does this. And it's like, yeah. I mean, why? <laughs> my favorite challenge to that is, guys, women shit. Are you not going <laughs> to shit because women shit? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's stupid. It's so stupid to be like, well, that, that, cla- that group of people does a thing. So therefore, I'm not going to do a thing to define myself yeah. as not that thing. It's ridiculous. Same for like painting my nails. Painting my nails or painting one's nails is traditionally considered an effeminate activity. Mm-hmm. And which I think is so silly because how many guys spend thousands of dollars to aesthetically change the presentation of their truck, yeah. change the paint, yeah. get it lifted? It is purely aesthetic. So what difference is there between you painting your truck or motorcycle and me painting my nails? Mm. None. Or we a want tattoo. to look pretty. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so yeah. true, but it's a cultural. Yeah, it's what culturally we've assigned to be these things. And what cultures? It's completely normal for sons to hold their mom's hand, yeah, or to hold other boys' hands and other men's hands mm. into adulthood, and that is normal. But here, it's, it's not. oh my god, that's so taboo. 
Yeah, so interesting. It's so interesting. And there's an extra level of fear around, I, I do think, in Christian spaces. Whereas maybe, you know, someone who's not a Christian but who still grew up in the culture might feel some of that. I do think there's an extra level when you're really mm -hmm. operating like God, these are God-given identities that look this way and that mm -hmm. way. And the truth is we see within, like my friend said, like we see within all of us, I, I think I can fairly confidently say almost all of us have some trait that is not traditionally always associated with yeah, our biological no. sex. And it's just really interesting to think about how that translates even into the bedroom and how we expect each other to act, you know? Here's a theological mindfuck for you. <laughs> the, the church is considered a feminine entity in, in the concept of God's son and the church, right? Mm -hmm. God and the son are both the masculine entity. Christ is going to go marry the church. Mm -hmm. Men are half of what comprises the church, which is a feminine entity. Oh, interesting. So yeah. you're going to tell me that, that you can't be feminine yeah. despite being the receptive entity in that, in that dynamic. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that's really interesting. I've never thought of it that way. Huh? Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. And thinking about like a lot of visualization of, of the end times of, or when Paul says, you know, there's not a male, no female, et cetera, et cetera. Or what happens to gender in heaven? Mm. Am I going to have, and what happens to gender and what happens to my physical body? Am I going to have a physical body or a spiritual body? Will my spiritual body have genitalia? Mm. How does that work? Yeah. So, yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. Okay, Nathaniel. So before we close, I want you to tell us where we can find you and where we can find your podcast. And if you want to give us a yeah. sneak preview, into, I know you have, I believe you said one episode already released. It's a brand new podcast. Um, and as of this recording, yep. I think you said you have one out. I'd love to hear any little sneak preview you want to give us on that. And, and yeah, where can people connect with you? Yeah, you can find me at Purity Cult Pod on Instagram, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, and YouTube. The handle on Instagram and YouTube is at Purity Cult Pod. Nice. Search for Purity Cult on uh, Spotify. Hopefully that'll come up. With it being so brand new, I don't know if I'm uh, appearing in search results just yet, but we'll link it in the show notes. Yeah, and I'll link it um, on my page and make sure people can, yeah. can find you all week. Because I do know that sometimes, I do know from season one, sometimes it takes a little bit for, for you know, Google to catch up and, and search engines, but you are there. Yeah. Yeah. In this first episode, I was thinking about this actually in the shower yesterday. I was like, huh, I probably should have done something different for the first episode. But uh, the first episode is asking the question, what's it like to leave the church? And what's it like to believe in a God? Yeah. So I was with a, I was with a friend at the bar the other day and he was asking me, like he, he didn't grow up in the church at all. So he's like, huh, I wonder what this is like. And just asked, yeah, what's it like to believe in a God? And that was actually, that hit me as a rather poignant question. Um, and so that episode dives into what that experience was like for me. And I, I would assume what that experience is like for other people. Yeah. Well, that fits in perfectly with my audience then. They'll get even more of a feel for you. <laughs> And then follow along for the rest of your journey. So I hope you all can can find Nathaniel there oh, yeah. and subscribe, follow, share. It'll definitely, I think it'll be a challenging show, but it'll be so helpful to so many of us. Who, like I said, if the, if you're like me and you're like, whoa, how did this affect me? And I didn't even realize it. It can be so helpful to have someone's perspective who has literally lived the other side now, you know, and and is able to kind of shed <laughs> shed some light on some of our blind spots. So. Well, Nathaniel, Absolutely. thank you so much for coming back on the show. 
for sharing with us. I'm really excited to see what people take from it. Always. I love being here. this episode was meaningful to you, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deconstructing the myth so that episodes like today's keep coming.